Chapter 2 On the People of God At all times and in every race, God has given welcome to whosoever fears him and does what is right. God, however, does not make men holy and save them merely as individuals, without bond or link between one another. Rather has it pleased him to bring men together as one people, a people which acknowledges him in truth and serves him in holiness. He therefore chose the race of Israel as a people unto himself. With it he set up a covenant. Step by step he taught and prepared this people, making known in its history both himself and the decree of his will, and making it holy unto himself. All these things, however, were done by way of preparation and as a figure of that new and perfect covenant which was to be ratified in Christ, and of that fuller revelation which was to be given through the word of God himself made flesh. Behold, the days shall come, saith the Lord, and I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. I will give my law in their bowels, and I will write it in their heart, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. For all of them shall know me, from the least of them even to the greatest, saith the Lord. Christ instituted this new covenant, the New Testament, that is to say, in his blood, calling together a people made up of Jew and Gentile, making them one, not according to the flesh, but in the spirit. This was to be the new people of God. For those who believe in Christ, who are reborn not from a perishable, but from an imperishable seed, through the word of the living God, not from the flesh, but from water and the Holy Spirit, are finally established as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a purchased people, who in times past were not a people, but now are the people of God. That messianic people has Christ for its head, who was delivered up for our sins and rose again for our justification, and now, having won a name which is above all names, reigns in glory in heaven. The state of this people is that of the dignity and freedom of the sons of God, in whose hearts the Holy Spirit dwells as in his temple. Its law is a new commandment to love as Christ loved us. Its end is the kingdom of God, which has been begun by God himself on earth, and which is to be further extended until it is brought to perfection by him at the end of time, when Christ our life shall appear, and creation itself will be delivered from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the sons of God. So it is that the messianic people, although it does not actually include all men, and at, all, and at all times may look like a small flock, is nonetheless a lasting and sure seed of unity, hope, and salvation for the whole human race. Established by Christ as a communion of life, charity, and truth, it is also used by him as an instrument for the redemption of all, and is sent forth into the whole world as the light of the world and the salt of the earth. Israel, according to the flesh, which wandered as an exile in the desert, was already called the church of God. So likewise the new Israel, which, while living in this present age, goes in search of a future and abiding city, is called the church of Christ. 
for he has bought it for himself with his blood, has filled it with his spirit, and provided it with those means which befit it as a visible and social union. God gathered together as one all those who in faith look upon Jesus as the author of salvation and the source of unity and peace, and established them as a church that for each and all it may be the visible sacrament of this saving unity. While it transcends all limits of time and confines of race, the church is destined to extend to all regions of the earth and so enters into the history of mankind. Moving forward through trial and tribulation, the church is strengthened by the power of God's grace, which was promised to her by the Lord, so that in the weakness of the flesh she may not waver from perfect fidelity, but remain a bride worthy of her Lord, and moved by the Holy Spirit, may never cease to renew herself, until through the cross she arrives at the light which knows no setting. Christ the Lord, high priest taken from among men, made the new people a kingdom and priest to God the Father. The baptized by regeneration and the anointing of the Holy Spirit are consecrated as a spiritual house and a holy priesthood, in order that through all those works which are those of the Christian man, they may offer spiritual sacrifices and proclaim the power of him who has called them out of darkness into his marvelous light. Therefore all the disciples of Christ, persevering in prayer and praising God, should present themselves as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Everywhere on earth they must bear witness to Christ and give an answer to those who seek an account of that hope of eternal life which is in them. Though they differ from one another in essence, and not only in degree, the common priesthood of the faithful and the ministerial or hierarchical priesthood are nonetheless interrelated. Each of them in its own special way is a participation in the one priesthood of Christ. The ministerial priest, by the sacred power he enjoys, teaches and rules the priestly people, acting in the person of Christ he makes present the Eucharistic sacrifice and offers it to God in the name of all the people. But the faithful and virtue of their royal priesthood join in the offering of the Eucharist. They likewise exercise that priesthood in receiving the sacraments, in prayer and thanksgiving, in the witness of a holy life, and by self-denial and active charity. It is through the sacraments and the exercise of the virtues the sacred nature and organic structure of the priestly community is brought into operation. Incorporated in the church through baptism, the faithful are destined by the baptismal character for the worship of the Christian religion. Reborn as sons of God, they must confess before men the faith which they have received from God through the church. They are more perfectly bound to the church by the sacrament of confirmation and the Holy Spirit endows them with special strength so that they are more strictly obliged to spread and defend the faith, both by word and by deed, as true witnesses of Christ. Taking part in the Eucharistic sacrifice, which is the fount and apex of the whole Christian life, they offer the divine victim to God and offer themselves along with it. Thus, both by reason of the offering and through Holy Communion, all take part in this liturgical service, not indeed all in the same way, but each in the way which is proper to himself. Strengthened in holy communion by the body of Christ, they then manifest in a concrete way that unity of the people of God, which is suitably signified 
and wondrously brought about by this most august sacrament. Those who approach the sacrament of penance obtain pardon from the mercy of God for the offense committed against him, and are at the same time reconciled with the church, which they have wounded by their sins, and which by charity, example, and prayer seeks their conversion. By the sacred anointing of the sick and the prayer of her priests, the whole church commends the sick to the suffering and glorified Lord, asking that he may lighten their suffering and save them. She exhorts them, moreover, to contribute to the welfare of the whole people of God by associating themselves freely with the passion and death of Christ. Those of the faithful who are consecrated by holy orders are appointed to feed the church in Christ's name with the word and the grace of God. Finally, Christian spouses, in virtue of the sacrament of matrimony, whereby they signify and partake of the mystery of that unity and fruitful love which exists between Christ and his church, help each other to attain to holiness in their married life and in the rearing and education of their children. By reason of their state and rank in life, they have their own special gift among the people of God. From the wedlock of Christians, there comes the family in which new citizens of human society are born, who by the grace of the Holy Spirit received in baptism are made children of God, thus perpetuating the people of God through the centuries. The family is, so to speak, the domestic church. In it, parents should, by their word and example, be the first preachers of the faith to their children. They should encourage them in the vocation which is proper to each of them, fostering with special, special care vocation to a sacred state. Fortified by so many and such powerful means of salvation, all the faithful, whether whatever their condition or state, are called by the Lord, each in his own way, to that perfect holiness whereby the Father himself is perfect. The holy people of God shares also in Christ's prophetic office. It spreads abroad a living witness to him, especially by means of a life of faith and charity, and by offering to God a sacrifice of praise, the tribute of lips which give praise to his name. The entire body of the faithful, anointed as they are by the Holy One, cannot err in matters of belief. They manifest the special property by means of the whole people's supernatural discernment in matters of faith when, from the bishops down to the last of the lay faithful, they show universal agreement in matters of faith and morals. That discernment in matters of faith is aroused and sustained by the spirit of truth. It is exercised under the guidance of the sacred teaching authority, in faithful and respectful obedience to which the people of God accepts that which is not just the word of men, but truly the word of God. Through it, the people of God adheres unwaveringly to the faith given once and for all to the saints, penetrates it more deeply with right thinking, and applies it more fully in its life. It is not only through the sacraments and the ministries of the church that the Holy Spirit sanctifies and leads the people of God and enriches it with virtues, but allotting his gifts to everyone according as he wills, he distributes special graces among the faithful of every rank. By these gifts, he makes them fit and ready to undertake the various tasks and offices which contribute to the renewal and building up of the church, according to the words of the Apostle. The manifestation of the Spirit is given to everyone for profit. These charisms, whether they be the mo more outstanding or the more simple, 
and widely diffused, are to be received with thanksgiving and consolation, for they are perfectly suited to, and useful needs useful for the needs of the church. Extraordinary gifts are not to be sought after, nor are the fruits of apostolic labor to be presumptuously expected from their use. But judgment as to their genuinity and proper use belongs to those who are appointed leaders in the church, to whose special competence it belongs, not indeed to extinguish the spirit, but to test all things and hold fast to that which is good. All men are called to belong to the new people of God, wherefore this people, who are remaining one and only one, is to be spread throughout the whole world, and must exist in all ages, so that the decree of God's will may be fulfilled. In the beginning God made human nature one and decreed that all his children, scattered as they were, would finally be gathered together as one. It was for this purpose that God sent his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and that he might be teacher, king, and priest of all, the head of the new and universal people of the sons of God. For this too God sent the Spirit of his Son as Lord and life-giver. He it is who brings together the whole church and each and every one of those who believe, and who is the wellspring of their unity in the teaching of the apostles and in fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. It follows that though there are many nations, there is but one people of God, which takes its citizens from every race, making them citizens of a kingdom which is of a heavenly rather than of an earthly nature. All the faithful, scattered though they be throughout the world, are in communion with each other in the Holy Spirit. And so, he who dwells in Rome knows that the people of India are his members. Since the kingdom of Christ is not of this world, the church or people of God, in establishing that kingdom, takes nothing away from the temporal welfare of any people. On the contrary, it fosters and takes to itself, insofar as they are good, the ability, riches, and customs in which the genius of each people expresses itself. Taking them to itself, it purifies, strengthens, elevates, and ennobles them. The church in this is mindful that she must bring together the nations for that king to whom they were given as an inheritance, and to whose city they bring gifts and offerings. This characteristic of universality, which adorns the people of God, is a gift from the Lord himself. By reason of it, the Catholic Church strives constantly and with due effect to bring all humanity and all its possessions back to its source in Christ, with him as its head and united in his spirit. In the virtue of this Catholicity, each individual part contributes through its special gifts to the good of the other parts and of the whole Church. Through the common sharing of gifts and through the common effort to attain fullness and unity, the whole and each of the parts receive increase. Not only then is the people of God made up of different peoples, but in its inner structure also it is composed of various ranks. This diversity among its members arises either by reason of their duties, as is the case for those who exercise the sacred ministry for the good of their brethren, or by reason of their condition and state of life as is the case with those many who enter the religious state and tending toward holiness by a narrow path, narrower path, stimulate their brethren by their example. Moreover, within the church, particular churches hold a rightful place. These churches retain their own traditions without in any way opposing the primacy of the chair of Peter, 
which presides over the whole assembly of charity and protects legitimate differences while at the same time assuring that such differences do not hinder unity but rather contribute toward it between all the parts of the church there remains a bond of close communion whereby they share spiritual riches apostolic workers and temporal resources for the members of the people of god are called to share these goods in common and of each of the churches the words of the apostle hold good according to the gift that each has received administer it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of god all men are called to be part of this catholic unity of the people of god which in promoting universal peace presages it and there belong to or are related to it in various ways the catholic faithful all who believe in christ and indeed the whole of mankind for all men are called by the grace of god to salvation this sacred council wishes to turn its attention firstly to the catholic faithful basing itself upon sacred scripture and tradition it teaches that the church now sojourning on earth as an exile is necessary for salvation christ present to us in his body which is the church is the one mediator and the unique way of salvation in explicit terms he himself affirmed the necessity of faith and baptism and thereby affirmed also the necessity of the church for through baptism as through a door men enter the church whosoever therefore knowing that the catholic church was made necessary by christ would refuse to enter or to remain in it could not be saved they are fully incorporated in the society of the church who possessing the spirit of christ accept her entire system and all the means of salvation given to her and are united with her as part of her visible bodily structure and through her with christ who rules her through the supreme pontiff and the bishops the bonds which bind men to the church in a visible way are profession of faith the sacraments and ecclesiastical government and communion he is not saved however who though part of the body of the church does not persevere in charity he remains indeed in the bosom of the church but as it were only in a bodily manner and not in his heart all the church's children should remember that their exalted status is to be attributed not to their own merits but to the special grace of christ if they fail moreover to respond to that grace in thought word and deed not only shall they not be saved but they will be the most severely judged catechumens who moved by the holy spirit seek with explicit intention to be incorporated into the church are by that very intention joined with her with love and solicitude Mother Church already embraces them as her own. The Church recognizes that, in many ways, she is linked with those who, being baptized, are honored with the name of Christian, though they do not profess the faith in its entirety, or do not preserve unity of communion with the successor of Peter. For there are many who honor sacred scripture, taking it as a norm of belief and a pattern of life, and who show a sincere zeal. They lovingly believe in God the Father Almighty and in Christ the Son of God and Savior. They are consecrated by baptism in which they are united with Christ. They also recognize and accept other sacraments within their own churches or ecclesiastical communities. Many of them rejoice in the Episcopate, celebrate the Holy Eucharist, and cult cultivate devotion toward the Virgin Mother of God. They also share with us in prayer and other spiritual benefits. Likewise, we can say 
that in some real way they are joined with us in the Holy Spirit. For to them too he gives his gifts and graces, whereby he is operative among them with a sanctifying power. Some indeed he has strengthened to the extent of the shedding of their blood. In all of Christ's disciples, the Spirit arouses the desire to be peacefully united in the manner determined by Christ as one flock under one shepherd, and he prompts them to pursue this end. Mother Church never ceases to pray, hope, and work that this may come about. She exhorts her children to purification and renewal so that the sign of Christ may shine more brightly over the face of the earth. Finally, those who have not yet received the gospel are related in various ways to the people of God. In the first place, we must recall the people to whom the testament and the promises were given and from whom Christ was born according to the flesh. On account of their fathers, this people remains most dear to, the, to God. For God does not repent of the gifts he makes, nor of the calls he issues. But the plan of salvation also includes those who acknowledge the Creator. In the first place, amongst the, these, there are the Muslims, who, professing to hold the faith of Abraham, along with us, adore the one and merciful God, who on the last day will judge mankind. Nor is God far distant from those who in shadows and images seek the unknown God. For it is he who gives to all men life and breath and all things, and as the Savior wills that all men be saved. Those also can attain to salvation who, through no fault of their own, not, do not know the gospel of Christ or his church, yet sincerely seek God, and moved by grace strive by their deeds to do his will, as it is known to them through the dictates of conscience. Nor does divine providence deny the helps necessary for salvation to those who, without blame on their part, have not yet arrived at an explicit knowledge of God, and with his grace to strive to live a good life. Whatever good or truth is found amongst them is looked upon by the church as a preparation for the gospel. She knows that it is given by him who enlightens all men, so that they may finally have life, but often men deceived by the evil one, have become vain in their reasonings and have exchanged the truth of God for a lie, serving the creature rather than the creator. For some there are who, living and dying in this world without God, are exposed to final despair. Wherefore, to promote the glory of God and procure the salvation of all of these, and mindful of the command of the Lord, preach the gospel to every creature, the church fosters the missions with care and attention. As the Son was sent by the Father, so he too sent the apostles, saying, Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you all the days, even to the consummation of the world. The church has received the solemn mandate of Christ, proclaim the saving truth from the apostles, and must carry it out to the very ends of the earth. Wherefore she makes the words of the apostle her own, Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel, and continues unceasingly to send heralds of the gospel, until such time as the infant churches are fully established and can themselves continue the work of evangelizing. For the church is compelled by the Holy Spirit to do her part <clears throat> that God's plan may be fully realized whereby he has constituted Christ as a source of salvation for the whole world. 
By the proclamation of the gospel, she prepares her hearers to receive and profess the faith. She gives them the dispositions necessary for baptism, snatches them from the slavery of error and of idols, and incorporates them in Christ, so that through charity they may grow up into full maturity in Christ. Through her work, whatever good is in the minds and hearts of men, whatever good lies latent in the religious practices and cultures of diverse peoples, is not only saved from destruction, but is also cleansed, raised up, and perfected unto the glory of God, the confusion of the devil, and the happiness of man. The obligation of spreading the faith is imposed on every disciple of Christ according to his state. Although, however, all the faithful can baptize, the priests alone can complete the building up of the body in the Eucharistic sacrifice. Thus are fulfilled the words of God, spoken through his prophet, from the rising of the sun until the going down, thereof my name is great among the Gentiles, and in every place a clean oblation is sacrificed and offered up in my name. In this way the church both prays and labors in order that the entire world may become the people of God, the body of the Lord, and the temple of the Holy Spirit, and that in Christ, the head of all, all honor and glory may be rendered to the Creator and Father of the universe.